Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host, Claire Navarro. For this week's podcast, we're closing out our series on language with Dr. Robert Hagel. I'm uh, Robert Hagel. I teach Chinese literature at Washington University, and I've been here for nearly 40 years. It'll be 40 years at the end of this year. Dr. Hagel joined Hold That Thought to discuss the relationship between Chinese literature and the written Chinese language. It may seem obvious that something like a novel or a poem is connected with written language, but as we'll hear, this is especially true for Chinese literature. The Chinese written language, of course, is very old. It became commonly used for um, administrative purposes around 3,000 years ago. And so there's, a, a, from that time onward, just a growing body of written literature. But of course, it's a difficult system to learn to read. It takes time. This fact hasn't changed much across the centuries. Today, it's difficult to learn to read and write Chinese. Thousands of years ago, this was still true. And the fact that the language was so difficult made a difference in the way that people used it. So one of the things that happened was um, an emphasis on conciseness in writing. And that, of course, means that it's even harder to read. It's sort of like reading legalese. To be very concise, very precise, requires very tightly controlled vocabulary. So instead of struggling through long, elaborate descriptions, writers tended to keep things short, which meant using the exact right word at the exact right time. You might think that this type of exactness would make the language sound sort of cold and official. For most of us, there's nothing very beautiful about legal language. But classical Chinese was also used for artistic forms of writing. It's surprising. Um, the language of classical, the classical Chinese language, I should say, was the language of enormous amounts of tremendously moving poetry. Its conciseness allowed in a, a, a line of, of, of five or seven syllables great range of expression. And one of the things I, f I finally realized, it took me a long time, that makes Chinese poetry so powerful is that it, it is so emotional. It is so powerfully emotional in terms of its expression and also what it, it, it anticipates on the part of the reader. And poetry is one of those forms that, in the Chinese context, it, it gives a kind of immortality to the writer because it, it, it allows the writer to put his or her feelings into a form that will last through time. There's a good reason for these writers to think that their poetry would last. Hegel mentioned that the Chinese written language is very old, some 3,000 years old. And unlike spoken languages, the written language didn't change very much across time. As time went on, the written language didn't change. It was sort of frozen at about the time of Confucius or a little bit more recently than that, so something over 2,000 years ago. But what it meant was that people all over the Chinese landmass could learn the same official language. Learning that language brought people who spoke different dialects, different languages, even from different cultures together, so that Koreans and Japanese and Vietnamese would all learn classical Chinese and be able to communicate in writing with their Chinese colleagues, even if they didn't have a common spoken language. Though it was hugely helpful to have an official written language that everybody who could read could understand, 
This also meant there was a disconnect between the way people talked and words on the page. And in some cases, it's useful to be able to document what people actually say. During the Tang period, around 1,200 years ago, there were Buddhist teachers, monks, whose lectures were recorded because they were talking about these Chan or Zen ideas. They're very difficult ideas, and people want to make sure they got the point, right, by getting it all down. So they wrote down more or less precisely what the, these people said as opposed to a more standardized version of them. And from that time onward, there were efforts to try to write more like how people spoke. But the minute you write down what one person says, a person speaking another dialect will have difficulty reading it. If you use the common standard classical form, everybody can read it. So this distinction we've been talking about between written and spoken language is quite a bit different than most people think about language in the U.S. I'm from Missouri, and I don't have to learn a specific written language to communicate with people from Oregon or Tennessee or anywhere else in this country. But throughout the long history of China, with so many different spoken languages and dialects, having a common written language separate from spoken language made a lot of sense. But what did this mean for literature? So in the beginning of vernacular fiction, which uh, occurs maybe a, uh, a thousand years ago or so, people began to loosen up this standardized classical form by adding in colloquial expressions or adding in modern terms. And the language began to grow in its flexibility. An example of this is The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which was published back in 1522. This novel stayed popular across the centuries in part because it's just a really compelling story. It's set around the year 200, when China's first great dynasty was falling apart. The overall theme that anything that is stable can become unstable has stayed relevant all the way up to today. But Hegel also credits the popularity of this novel to the language in which it was written. And this first novel, written and uh, published in 1522, is written in a kind of loose form of the classical language. Now the relevance of that is that everybody who was literate was trained in the classical language because there was no education otherwise and because the classical language was the language of administration, history, and so forth. And so that meant the readership was relatively broad. Anybody who was literate, to any reasonable extent, could read this novel. And to some extent, this is still true today. People still read classical novels like The Three Kingdoms, and they read them in the original language. But the funny thing is, they don't translate these novels. You, you learn to read them in the original. And because reading Chinese is like reading any language. That is, say, you run into things that you don't understand. I mean, for me, it's legal language. I don't, I don't do very well with legal language in English. I don't have enough experience with it. And uh, technical language, computer language, seems beyond my grasp. And inevitably, for a person to read uh, the Three Kingdoms novel, for example, they'll run into things they don't understand, but, but contextualization is everything. You can always figure out more or less what's being said, even if you don't know a particular term. Versions that include lots of footnotes also help. Now, you might think that the issue of what type of language to use in a story like The Three Kingdoms only came up as Chinese novels were first being written some 1,500 years ago. But now, fast forward to modern China, 
In Ethnologue, an online catalog of the world's languages, there are 298 individual languages listed for China. Today, the common written language is no longer classical Chinese. Instead, the written standard is based on what in the U.S. is often called Mandarin. But this difference between written and spoken language still exists. And in something like a movie, people still have to decide between using a local language or being understood by a larger audience. Since the advent of the modern media, radio especially, but television, movies as well, decisions have to be made what language to use, after all. Uh, well, like, for example, in, in the 1980s, there were a number of sort of realistic movies made in China, and they, they showed all around the world, and they were very popular, like the Yellow, Yellow Earth and Red Sorghum and other such movies. They often are set in a particular place, and the language spoken is that local language. And for most audiences, you have to have Chinese subtitles to be able to read it if you don't have to know that language. Of course, having a common written language is helpful for this. But Hegel also notes that in China, it's quite common for people to know multiple languages. And this is something that he wishes were true here in the U.S. There's a, uh, a grocery store that I go to often enough here in St. Louis in which the clerks can carry on in sequence f conversations, brief conversations about the goods they're selling and so forth in four or five different languages all at once, including English. And they just go from one to the, the next, depending on whoever the customer speaks. And they might not be able to speak in detail in any more than one or two of them, but it's common that people have multilingual skills. And it's all seen as Chinese because it all uses the same written form. And it, once you write something down, it's easily understood by anybody. So that's part of the fun of learning, learning Chinese. And by which I am handicapped because I only speak one Chinese language. But that's just because I'm a foreigner. <laughs> Many thanks to Robert Hagel for contributing to Hold That Thought. For the rest of our series on language and many more ideas to explore, please visit our website. You can find us at holdthatthought.wustl.edu. That's holdthatthought.wustl.edu. You can also search for Hold That Thought on Facebook and Twitter and find our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and PRX.org. <laughs>